Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. My name is Todd Rittendaro, and in this episode, I sit down and chat with artist and teacher Will Weston. Will is an associate professor at Art Center College of Design, where he teaches in the entertainment arts and entertainment design departments. He has an MFA in fine art and worked as an advertising illustrator before moving into animation. He's worked in animation for Disney, Nickelodeon, and Sony, and he's also taught at DreamWorks Television and Feature Animation and lectured in their lunchtime lecture program. I've been fortunate enough to study with Will over the past few years at the Animation Guild in Burbank, and he has an incredibly unique way of breaking down the complexity of drawing. His Instagram feed is a goldmine of information, and I highly recommend checking out his feed, which can be found at Will Weston Studio which I will also link in the show notes. I've learned a tremendous amount from Will over the years, and in this episode, he shares some great insights, advice, and a few assignments that he gives his Art Center students that are relevant for anyone in the visual arts who wants to think deeper about their work. And like all of my conversations with Will, we just dive right into it, so I hope you enjoy. You know, if a student's smart enough and motivated enough, I think you could probably cobble together through various online classes and then taking life drawing classes and a few live painting classes because you still need the demonstrations. You, know, you still need somebody to look you in the eye and sort of let you know that you, you don't know something you think you know, or maybe the converse, that you actually do know something that you don't think you know, because right. both of those things happen. And, uh, but I do think, for example, and I've seen it, People have cobbled together a pretty good education by going to the Animation Guild, and then maybe they pay a little more for other classes over at the Concept Design Academy, and maybe the Society of Illustrators, you know, sort of put it around. They kind of ring, you know, the big institution like, say, Art Center. You know, they ring it, you know. And right. Now, I think Art Center at this point is still the A game, but yeah, it's absolutely. an expensive game. It's an expensive game, but yeah. I think just the pure concentration and the level of work. It's the culture, too. Yeah. One thing Art Center can do is provide the culture. And I think that's really what a university does. Yeah. So if you go to Art Center and you're a young kid, say, right out of high school, suddenly you meet all these other people who are the best in their high school class. Right. And then you, you meet sort of these little mutants who, you know, don't show up in every high school class, but maybe show up twice a year at some school or twice, maybe twice a decade is probably more accurate. Right. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're all there. Um, but what happens is the, uh, since everybody's in the same boat, this, you know, the Stockholm syndrome takes over. Totally. <laughs> and your life is homework and class and homework and class. And, and that's basically what they do. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really the secret. That's why, you know, when I post their images on, on Instagram, you know, the comments I'm getting is, you know, well, those guys are amazing. It's like, well, yeah, because, you know, for every five hours they're in class, they're spending 10 hours on homework. Right. And it's concentrated and they're influencing each other. And that's what does it. Yeah. No, I mean, the work that you post from your students is it continues to be even more mind blowing class by class, I feel like. But this <laughs> the tone paper stuff I've been I've oh been God. posting. Ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and and it is getting better each class. It is getting better each class. Because what happens is I use student work to train the next generation of students. Mm -hmm. So whoever basically aced it this term sets the bar for next term. Right. And so I'm using again the culture of the school, right? And the culture of my class as well. I'm using to kind of influence future students as they go forward. Yeah. yeah. I use ringers, you know. When I first started out, I would have students as TAs at Art Center because I had to help build the drawing program to get it up to sort of an entertainment level. 
And, you know, I'd latch on to a student who was pretty good, and I'd make them my TA, and their job was to basically draw in the middle of the class surrounded by other people so that they would raise the bar in the class. And then other students in the class would attempt to match them. Right, smart. And so what I realized is you want to basically pitch your class to the middle. So the setting or the, the tone of the class and the information is pitched to the middle. You allow the people who are more advanced to be more advanced. So in other words, you cut them a separate deal. They do more work. They do more elevated work. Yeah. All the people in the middle see that, and it just sucks them up into the, the this kind of vacuum at the top you know as the advanced people advance all the people in the middle go with them and you sort of scoop up a few more people sort of there maybe in the lower rungs of the class and you sort of bring them up too right so the secret is a high middle <laughs> yeah it makes sense yeah, yeah absolutely it does i know that you started out as an illustrator i did correct and i remember this funny story you told in class once about conning your way into a job do you know what I'm talking Conning about? Conning is such a negative word. <laughs> it um, is. I mean, uh, let's use it. Wait, uh, all right, I'm going re- to start I prefer over. to think that it made it easy. I made it easier for people to hire me. <laughs> I took the pressure of hiring someone new off the shoulders of the person who I was going to go to work for. Right. Basically, what I did was a bunch of, of demo drawings, and I did them. They were all, I came down to Los Angeles, and back then it was all about magazines and magazine racks. So, you know, I looked at the magazine rack. I saw that. There were tons of car magazines. There were A magazines, B magazines, C magazines. There were just tons of them. Yeah. And they were all full of these little spot illustrations. And what would happen is if an article ended a little bit early, they would fill the empty space with a spot illustration. So mm-hmm. this wasn't high-level illustration. This was entry-level, right. right? And they had a few stars doing it, people who were really good. And I thought, you know, I can match that. So I went out and did a bunch of pen and ink drawings of cars peeling out of intersections and things like that. Took them in. I probably had 16 or 20 drawings. And just the first guy I happened to meet said, you know, this is great. I love your work, but you haven't been published yet. And, you know, the problem is you'll kind of freak out if I give you an assignment and it'll be late and I'll have a blank page in the magazine. <laughs> and So get some work and then come back and... I'll publish you and I I had rent to right you know I mean I, I you know yeah I'm not living for free I got to get out there and and do things and I didn't want to work I sort of had the idea that if if I couldn't make a living as an artist then I'd turn into whatever job I happened to get yeah. so it was very important to me that I not not be an artist right that I, I really had to continue being an artist so back then we had all these mu- used magazine shops and I just went to the magazine shops, found magazines that were obscure and were East Coast magazines, and there was no internet, you couldn't check this stuff. And I just, you know, did a thing called a photocopy and I reduced down my my drawings and I basically pasted them on top of existing art or photography in these obscure magazines from the East Coast. Went back to the same publisher, to a different art director, and they hired me. And that was it. Genius. Yeah. So <laughs> I just couldn't afford to wait. Right. You know, I think David Ogilvie got, I think it was Pan Am or United Airlines. He faked an entire advertising agency. He walked people through an advertising agency that had, you know, recorded conversations going on, you know, on behind closed doors and things <laughs> right. like that. So it's pretty minor what I did compared to some of these other guys, but still. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, let's just call it creative entrepreneurship. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Ethically speaking, I wouldn't say I can do a job I couldn't do. Right. You know, I wouldn't take on a job and then not do it. I mean, there are a lot of things I wouldn't do, but this here I sort of thought, well, this is just stupid. I'm not going to sort of wait on just a form, right. basically. So, I mean, I've heard you say 
or suggest some things to students along the same lines. Of mm-hmm. Not th- that exact thing, but being creative with how you get your portfolio in the door yeah. and to the art directors yeah. in the an- animation industry. Or Within what. certain ethical bounds, sure. You know, make them look at you, make them take you seriously. You, you know, you, you know, it's a culture that. Well, I, I should put it another way. You know, it, it really is a business full of people who are a little bit aggressive. Yeah. Right. A little bit aggressive, and and it's a very subjective business. So. Frequently, you know, the person who manages to get in front of the decision maker is the person who can get the job if they have their story lined up and if they they can back it up. Right. right? I could back it up. When he gave me the job, I did the job and I didn't screw it up. Sure. Right. So I could back up what I did. They just didn't want to give me the chance. And that was it. And I've seen that at other times and in other places and with other people in the industry, too. When do you feel like you knew you wanted to be an artist? You know, I'm one of these people who, if, if <laughs> I have to be careful and not create the impression that I had some master plan because I really <laughs> didn't. You know, I, I've, I've sort of made it up as I've gone along most of the time. And, and, you know, I went to art school. And when I was in art school, I didn't think about what I would do when I got out of art school. I think what I had was an idea that I didn't quite know what fine art was exactly. Mm-hmm. So... Being an illustrator seemed smarter to me, although I didn't give a lot of thought to what being an illustrator actually was. And then I sort of thought, well, an illustrator has to draw well, and then after that he should be able to paint well. And my reasoning was that I'd seen illustrators who were successful as draftsmen, Mm -hmm. and I just kind of reasoned out that if I was going to be a really good painter, it would be because I was a good draftsman. So I really focused on drawing in school, and that was really the thing. And back in the day, you know, we're talking a long time ago. We're talking mid seventies. Back in the uh, in the day, if you got out and you showed potential, like they looked at your portfolio and they saw you could do something for them, they would take a chance on you more than likely. Especially if they thought you had drive and you'd be reliable and all these other things. Of course, you have to be. But today, I think you have to be more finished. You have to be more polished. You have to be a more completed product. Right because the profession has become more professionalized. I think in the end, if you factor in entertainment and game design and all these various things, there's probably more room for artists in the field today than when I came out. Mm. But we had the benefit of it being far less organized and far less systematized. So you really could just kind of stumble your way into things and you know, talk your way into doors, and people would let you do it because there was no other, no real alternative at the time, yeah. right? So they would just have to take a chance on you. Right. When you went to art school, was it Art Center? or where No, you just, uh, I went to California College of Arts and Crafts, which mm-hmm. is now called California College of the Arts. It's up in the Bay Area, and I went there because my mother picked it. So I didn't even pick the school. <laughs> I liked it because it was in the Bay Area, and of course I went there in 1973, so it was a great time oh, to God. be in the Bay Area. Imagine. <laughs> and so it was a, I think, pretty good art school. And I was there at a really great time. And one of the great aspects of the art school really was the area that it was in. Because, you know, I spent a lot of time cutting classes and going to San Francisco and kind of experiencing that time period. Right. I mean, almost in the heart of the counterculture Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, a lot of the the major issues have been resolved. The Vietnam War was over. Right. So some of the sort of more divisive things had been resolved, although only about 18 months earlier, you know, maybe a year, 18 months earlier. So, you know, there was a lot of residual effect 
and but a lot of it was really interesting. You know, the, the sort of hippie movement was going on, and and glam rock was going on, and you know, I lived you know in the East Bay, so I you know so you know in, in Oakland you had guys with huge afros, and it was it was just it was a flamboyant time period. Paul Simon said it was so great it couldn't go on because you can't run a culture that way. Right. <laughs> and he's right. I mean, based on my experience. But I'm, I'm grateful for that experience. Yeah. God, I bet it was incredible. Yeah. And then you worked in in illustration that was part of advertising, right? Then. For, yeah. For after more? I got out of the Bay Area, I, you know, after I graduated from school, I sort of thought I wanted to, I don't know, sort of strike out and kind of define myself on my own. I have a lot of family up there and, you know, I was sort of very tied in up there. Yeah. So I really, I came to Los Angeles because when I was in boarding school, I had friends that lived in Los Angeles and I kind of mistook Malibu for all of Los Angeles. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, <laughs> you know, my, my noble, my noble thoughts for coming down here had a lot to do with Malibu. Right. But, you know, I, I landed on you know the, the west side, and I it was a great place to sort of land in Los Angeles back then. And and when I got here, I, I again I, I really discovered advertising illustration when I got here, mm-hmm. and I ended up with agents in you know New York, and Los Angeles and Chicago. I had some agents in St. Louis for a while because you know they sort of specialized in beer posters and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. So. That was a whole industry, and the secret there was, you know, to get agents showing your portfolio as many times in a given week as you could. Right. It just simply increased your odds of staying employed. You know, I had a really solid 18-year run. Wow. You know, so. Incredible. Yeah, it set up pretty fast, too. I mean, it was, it was interesting. I, I, you know, I always felt like I was somewhat operating sort of at the leading edge of what my actual skills were so uh, (laughs) there was always a lot of pressure not to screw up it seemed to me Uh, but you know most of the time I didn't I can't say I was perfect you know I screwed up a few projects here and there but you know by and large it it turned out well and were you drawing in a in a specific style that was distinctly yours at that point or were you adapting to the projects actually back then I wasn't you know if you were an advertising illustrator what I discovered was you really wanted to be a painter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in art school, I was really enamored of this guy, uh, Bruce Wolf, mm-hmm. who did Fender guitar ads and things like that, that, you know, were the things that we thought were cool back then. Yeah. It was, you know, it was all about the music, right? Movies were really kind of a B option, right? And part of it was that, you know, I mean, the bands were just so good and the concerts were so good and you could afford to go to them. So, it, you know, music was really a defining feature of youth culture in a lot of ways back then. Right. And so that's kind of what I thought was cool. I wanted to do album covers and Fender guitar ads. Got out of school and they immediately went to CDs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I realized it's pretty hard to get a Fender guitar ad, right? Because <laughs> Bruce Wolf was doing them. So when I came down here, I, I just, you know, I started, I just got these agents because what happened is I, I kind of hooked up with older illustrators and a lot of my actual professional education was, you know, I had, you know, the smallest office in a group, mm. you know, of, of an office that would have a group of illustrators in it. And, you know, I would do a combination of helping them out with parts of their projects that they didn't feel like doing, you know, usually the setup and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I would work on portfolio pieces. It was pretty cheap to live back then. So if I had little gaps in my income, you know, 
It didn't really cost me very much to live, so I always had enough money. Yeah. Eventually, their agents took an interest in me because you know they, they sort of saw me as this scrappy kid you know, who was always there. And I think they just started throwing projects at me just because you know they'd bring in a project and nobody wanted to do it because there would be something wrong with it and they just throw it at me and I would do the project wow. and eventually you know one guy just said well I guess I ought to represent you since I'm basically doing it anyway <laughs> and so that's how things would start for me you know it was never it was always a little bit underwhelming right. well I guess I might as well represent you and he happened to be the best agent in Los Angeles or one of them at the time a guy named Paul Cormany at the time and he wow. you know he was great but he it was a school of hard knocks. You know, he'd look at a painting and he'd go, "Well, that one, that sucks. This is terrible over here. You got to fix this." <laughs> you know, and, and so it was. It was not very gentle, but it was a good way to learn. Yeah. Can you remember if you had? Did you have one teacher who helped bring you up, or was it an agent or mentor during that time? Yeah, I'm a big fan of. Uh, I I think what I realize is that you don't have to have a lot of people help you, mm -hmm. but what you really need is the right people at the right time. Yeah. And there's a little bit of alchemy involved in that because you never quite know, you know, who that person might be in advance. You know, I try to be that person, you know, when I teach. But I would say a couple people. You know, I went to, I'm dyslectic. So some of my earlier educational life was a little bit difficult mm -hmm. because it really doesn't matter how smart you are if you're going to turn letters around. It's going to screw up your essays and screw up your math. And, yeah. You know, if, if you know, back then they just didn't know what any of this stuff was. I mean, they knew it was a thing. They just didn't know what it was. And so I had a couple people show a lot of faith in me. In other words, they didn't look at the dyslexia. They sort of looked at me, hmm. and they said, "Well, yeah, you might be dyslectic, but I can see that you yourself are quite bright and that you can solve these problems. So we're going to work with you anyway." And one of them was a guy named Bill Webb who accepted me into my prep school in high school. Hmm. So he would be. And he never taught me a class. He was the head of the school. And he just met me and talked to me for a while. And he just sort of, you know, I think you'll just do fine. I don't care what anybody says. So, you know, you right. can come to the school. And I did fine. When I got to art school, I went through a, a, a rather rambunctious, unfocused period having to do with the Bay Area in 1973-74. <laughs> uh, Ralph Borge, who was an older man, probably my age now, he had this goatee and he had this vest that he would wear and he had this kind of dignity that was pretty hard to resist. And, you know, one day he, you know, during some conversation he was having with me in class, he said, you know, this may not have occurred to you, Will, but you're actually very talented and you can do well at this. <laughs> The truth is, I don't really think I'd given it a lot of thought. I really don't think I had. I mean, it, it was something I was doing, you know, but so was everything else I was doing, something I was doing. It was just something I was doing. I really didn't give it a lot of thought, yeah. you know. But he did, and so he sort of said, you know, what I'm going to do is you're going to let me help you learn how to focus, and you're going to let me help you learn how to learn how to do this stuff. You know, he, he never became my buddy. He was a guy who checked up on me. And like sort of most of these people that I've run into, they by and large were pretty gruff with me. Yeah. You know, they, they basically didn't think they should cut me any slack. So they, he really didn't. And I think he may have been doing that with, I wouldn't be surprised, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if maybe he was doing it with 10 or 15 different people. Mm. 
you know, I only knew about me. Right. But when I teach at Art Center, I have all kinds of little ways of motivating different students at any one time. And I wouldn't say it's 15, but maybe three or four at a time. I'm, I realize that, you know, this student needs a lot of support. This student over here needs to be kicked in the ass. This student over here, you know, and, you know, you just, you you sort of are helping them, but everybody needs to be helped differently. And I think he just sort of saw that with me, and that's what he did. Wow. He put me in with a group of people who were really good, too. He sort of selected my social group for me. So I ran into a guy named Lance Friedman, who went on to be very successful. Another guy named Gary Rudell, who went on to be very successful. He really sort of stuck me in this group with highly motivated and pretty careerist guys. And I think that was part of it, too, because I really wasn't. As I said, I was just kind of drifting along and really enjoying myself. But, you know, <laughs> I wasn't, I had no plan, whereas I saw these guys did. So I, thought, I sort of thought, well, I guess I should, too. Well, that's, I mean, that's such a rare skill. And I see you have it in the way that you, you can, you know what somebody needs at that time. Yeah, I pick it up, I think, from these other people, too. Yeah. You know, I, I really am sort of emulating some of these people that I've encountered along the way, yeah. I think. How did you make the transition from illustration to animation? Illustration is an interesting field because I think I got into illustration and in a way I think I sort of got into the last maybe 18, 19 years of advertising illustration as a really good field to be in. It had been around for a long time. I think it was you know, 100, 120 years old in terms of the way we think of illustration, right. magazines, advertising, that kind of stuff. But I think I probably got in on the last 18 or 19 years. Of course, we didn't know that at the time. You know, you're in there and you're just kind of in your time. You can't see 20 years into the future, mm -hmm. really. So in, in about 89, something happened. And I think a number of things happened. And I, I, you know, I haven't done a study. But Photoshop came out. Advertising, illustration, the fees had gotten so good that I think clients were probably tired of paying for the fees. They had discovered really the, the power of using stars of various kinds, celebrity culture, mm -hmm. to promote products. Because illustrations, you were always illustrating an idea. So, you know, you would do this perfect lawn, let's say, and it was, you were illustrating the concept or the idea of the perfect lawn. Whereas, you know, they would just stick a girl in a bathing suit on the lawn and you're, you're going to sell just as much ortho plant and weed killer <laughs> as with this idea that I'm expressing of this lawn. And I think they just discovered that. And so it sort of the, the market shifted, right? Yeah. And markets shift. I mean, they just simply do. You know, we don't see it, but the markets shifted in the sense that the game industry is what? Twice the size of the film industry? Yeah. But nobody crazy. talks about it. But... You know, we have the game industry in Southern California as well as the film industry. There's more talk about film, but really the game industry is huge. And that's another market that uses illustration. So, you know, these markets shift. And I think it just went through this, you know, kind of tectonic shift. And in about 18 months, it just dried out. And there was no internet, so you really couldn't run around and say, are you out of work? What's going, you know, and so... You know, naturally, you took it personally. I'm out of style, or I've offended some people. And eventually, I thought, okay, for whatever reason, this thing is dying. And, you know, it's not a good idea to ride a dead horse into the ground. Yeah. So I thought I'd go to grad school. And so I went to grad school and, you know, got a master's degree in fine art. I applied to 12 and was turned down at, I think, 11. 
uh, because, <laughs> well, you know, an illustrator, especially an advertising illustrator with a long career applying to a fine art school, you know, I think a lot of them sort of thought of it as, you know, would you willingly accept the devil into your ranks? You know, would you <laughs> right. really do that? And so, uh, but Claremont Graduate School, I, I sort of knew the chair a little bit. And again, he sort of was the only one of the 12 that actually talked to me and actually met me as a person. Yeah. And I was actually voted down by the students who get to choose who their colleagues are going to be, but the chair is allowed two overrides. And I was one of his overrides. He just overrode them and let me in. And, you know, the reason I wanted to go into a fine art program was not so much because I thought I wanted to be a fine artist, but why would I go into an illustration program after I had an 18-year career? Right. You know, I mean, I, I really... So I wanted to learn something different, and I wanted to add to my body of knowledge. And somewhere along the way, I became a little bit bookish, you know? I wasn't in college, mm -hmm. but as I matured, I started being more interested in sort of the intellectual side of all this. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how old were you at that point in grad well, I was like 39 wow. when I went to grad school. And uh, then I got out, and... I wanted to teach, but it was very difficult to get full-time teaching positions back then for various reasons. And so, you know, I was, I think, a finalist 10 or 12 times, you yeah. know, and, and just for one reason or another, nothing happened. So I thought, okay, at least for the moment, because of whatever conditions are on at the moment, mm -hmm. this is not a good time for me to, to do this. And I was complaining to a friend of mine saying, well, I don't know what I'm going to do because, you know, I don't want to be a freeway flyer driving around teaching part time everywhere. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a finalist when I enter these searches, but they always choose somebody else. I was a finalist at a couple of schools like two or three years in a row. Wow. And they would still, you know, so I'd go into the, uh, the committee for the conversation mm -hmm. and, you know, oh, hi, Will. And, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be there except these people liked me. But you know, for various reasons, I just wouldn't get in. So I was talking to this guy and I said, you know, I just don't know how to get in. And he goes, you're hired. And so I, he, he was an art director at Disney. And so I was hired at Disney and I, I had to go there. I had the painting skill, but I had to reprioritize things because in advertising, you know, really you're driving down the freeway and the idea of the ad was to grab you out of your own thoughts. Yeah and make you look at the billboard or you know grab you out of your own thoughts and make you look at the advertising in a, in a magazine let's say and background painting is supposed to be in the background so that the actors can get all the attention and so i had to really learn how to not do really showy paintings that would sort of try to steal the spotlight from the actor right wow. so it really was it was surprising once i was there and i started learning how to do it it was surprising how difficult it was to kind of retool my thinking so that I would do everything with a high level of finish, but much more simply and in some ways with a lot less gloss than I would say in an advertising field, right? Because right. they both use artists, they both involve very skilled people, but they're not the same business, they're different businesses. So, you know, that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's very good. Cool. And so you were still using gouache and traditional I, I didn't paint in gouache. I painted in acrylic. Oh, okay. You know, a little bit of oil, you know, but, you know, really that's not a very commercial medium, you know. So I painted in acrylic, and I also painted in a, a paint 
that behaves like gouache quite a bit. It was called Cell Vinyl, mm -hmm. and you could buy it from the Cartoon Color Company in uh, in Culver City. And I was using Liquitex for ages, and then I discovered Cell Vinyl, and that was it for Liquitex because <laughs> Cell Vinyl was made for people who did the background paintings for animation. And I was still doing a little bit of advertising illustration. I switched to sell vinyl and everybody just loved it. I could make it look like airbrush and never pick up an airbrush. I could make it look like an oil painting. Cell vinyl had this, it has, it had twice the pigment of normal <laughs> acrylic. So you could water it down really thin, kind of like a gouache, mm -hmm. but it would stay it would stay opaque. Wow. And you'd use a, a brush called a badger blender and you could blend the edges. There was this whole technique to it that was just fantastic. Oh, very and cool. the second I discovered the technique, I just dropped everything and just went straight into it. You know, of course, now that's a, a little bit of a dead technique because now everybody paints uh, digitally. And then, you know, I got into the Disney training program because I applied for it, right? But one of the things they noticed was that I could draw and I could paint. Again, going back another 15 years back, right? Because even that's a long time ago now. And because I could draw and paint back then in an industry which basically had a production line, kind of like an auto plant, mm -hmm. you know, the layout artist did the layout, the BG painter did the, did the painting, somebody else did everything else. Having somebody who could draw and compose a picture and also paint it was a little bit rare back then. I knew other guys who could do it, but they weren't common. Mm -hmm. So that's what got me into the training program. And I was one of the last six people to go through Disney's traditional animation training program. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the last six. Incredible. Yeah, it's, it's the story of my life. I'm one of the last people in. But even then, they taught us Maya. And, you know, so even though we were the last of the traditional people, they taught us anticipating the transition into digital. Mm -hmm. So my experience in animation was really one of, you know, I was right there at that point of transition from traditional into into digital and it meant that every time I worked on a project I did a different job because they hadn't worked out the production pipelines things like that and so on home on the range which is a project I did at Disney it was the first one they put me on I designed props traditionally and then I would and, and locations traditionally and then we would build them digitally and they would have the same guy who designed it build it and that never happened again because you know they realized no, you have the designer's design, and then the, they send it off to the prop design department, the Maya department, and they just build everything. <laughs> but they hadn't figured that out yet, right? So, you know, they taught me Maya. I worked on Maya in one project, and I've never picked it up since then. But, you know, the only things I've ever done on Maya ended up in a feature animated film. Wow. Yeah. Incredi what an incredible crash course in all well, of it. Well, it was totally a crash course. <laughs> yeah. And... And I, I crashed Disney's servers one night by accident. They were doing Dinosaur. You know, I didn't have a complete understanding about how all, the, how all these things work, right? So what I didn't know is that at night, they would basically sort of slave every computer in, at Disney and turn all of Disney into a render farm. Wow. And what they would do is they would, you know, mathematically, I don't know how they did it, but they got it so they knew exactly how much computing power they had, and they just went... I don't know, to 1% left over or wow. something. And one evening, I, I'd done this interior of this train, and I was pleased with it, and it was a lot of work, and it really represented the apex of all my Maya training, and I thought, I want a print of this. So before I left, I just hit print. <laughs> and that was just enough to crash the entire system that night. 
So I come in the next day and there are a bunch of guys sitting in my office waiting for me. And what was interesting is they weren't really angry because what I did wasn't that big a deal. Who, who would know that, that they were operating to that level of, you know, sort of precision at night? Right. And, you know, I just, I printed things all day long. It hadn't occurred to me that they were going to have to build this whole thing in order to print it. Right? <laughs> so, anyway. Oh, how funny. Yeah. Did you enjoy working at Disney and the collaborative nature of all that? Yeah, I did. I mean, I think, you know, it's the only time I ever worked where I was in a large system like that. When I was at Disney, Disney was in free fall. I mean, it was it was the Treasure Planet period, all of that kind of stuff. And so what had happened was they'd put all these movies into production. And, you know, they just kind of got the formula wrong. You know, now they have the formula right. Right, right so, yeah. I mean, they're just this kind of behemoth. But back then, you know, they... They were, so everything was a little vaguely Star Warsy, and everything was kind of like adventure stories where realistically, why wouldn't I just go watch a live action version of this? Why would I watch you know these things? Nevertheless, the art was great, yeah. right? The visual development art was great. You know, the problem was selling it to the public. You know, so you know you have to realize these things operate on two levels, right? You're in these studios, and you have this amazing talent everywhere but if your premise is off or if your timing is off or your if the studio is making say maybe a film that isn't exactly right or like let's say you know you've got one too many penguin movies coming out one year and you didn't know the other two were coming out you know your movie could tank anyway uh, two years later it could be a success right yeah. so these things are you know they're pretty good at predicting it but it can be a little tough right so in Disney, walking around Disney, and again, I always get in before they organize these things, so I could wander around all the floors and look at everything. Mm -hmm. Meeting the artists, seeing how good they were, you know, learning by walking into their offices and watching them work, going through a training program where people like Paul Felix would come over and show you how to do things. Oh, or, yeah, that must have been you know, fun. Yeah, I mean, it was, because <laughs> that's what they would do. They would just sort of tap one of their feature animation guys to come over and talk to us for two hours. And, you know, for the people who were in that program, two hours is all you really need. You don't, I don't need them to teach me a 14-week class. I right. just need them to kind of, oh, I get it. You know, <laughs> that's how that works. Yeah, exactly. I, I, that's what I'm supposed to do. Okay. And so, yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was, it was great. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, I, I, I felt that maybe the upper management at the time was a little shaky on the concepts of how to run this thing, but they got rid of those people and brought in other people, and so yeah. that's what happened. Right. I've only been over there a handful of times, but just walking through the hallways, it's just so inspiring. I mean, there's, oh, it's great. there's concept art everywhere. There's like oh, yeah. little coffee bars set up, like whatever movie they're working on mm -hmm. at the time. It's It seems like a really just... One of the things that was interesting about being in the training program there was they have a thing called the ARL, and it's where they store Disney art going all the way back to, um, you know, Snow White. Oh, wow. And before, actually. You know, Disney takes themselves seriously, so they have all that artwork. You know, all that artwork, all the maquettes, everything going all the way back to the beginning of Disney is in a storage facility. And, and that it's, it's basically a functioning library. So when we were in the training program, one of the privileges of being in the program was that we could call the ARL and say, could you bring out the backgrounds for Bambi so we could see oh, it? Oh, my God. Yeah. And we'd go there and they'd have all these tables lined up and white gloves and they would have all the painted backgrounds for Bambi or, you know, some other film, you know, that they had, and you could pick them up, 
you could just oh hold them God. in your hands. And, and you Incredible. know, the, uh, the people representing the RL would be there just to make sure we were not doing anything untoward. But right. after a while, they got to know us, and we'd go over there, because we went over there a ton. I mean, we really abused the privilege. We went over there like four <laughs> times a week. And they would start bringing out things they thought maybe that we should see, but that we wouldn't think of, mm-hmm. like original artwork from propaganda films that Disney was doing during World War II, <laughs> and you know just stuff that you wouldn't think of. Like they would bring out Gremlins unscrewing planes and <laughs> oh yeah, it was just great. It was just great, and you know that was one of the great. And even if you were in the feature animation division, you couldn't do that. That was actually a special privilege for people who were actually in the training program. And even if you were, you know, one of the big guns over at the feature animation division, you couldn't just go over there and say, bring it out, please. Oh, my God. That must have been incredible. Oh, it was awesome. It really oh, was. how much fun. How many years were you in the studio system? Not that long, really. I mean, I was in about seven years. So, you know, what happened was, well, in the seven years, though, I mean, I, yeah, I worked at Disney. I worked for Warner Brothers. I worked over at Nickelodeon. And I was over at Sony. I worked on Open Season, mm-hmm. where we were putting out their, their first feature animation under their own banner mm-hmm. and it was you know it was a decent hit too i mean you know it's you know you know it wasn't like i don't know frozen but it was it was a solid hit you know while i was there um yet carter goodrich was there and paul lasane was there and they were working on uh development for hotel t they were working on surfs up you know so again it was this little pod uh, building that looked like a bunker within the 20 feet of where my office was, the level of talent was just extraordinary. Wow. I mean, it was just all these guys collected in this tiny little area. You know, we had access to the whole Sony lot and all that, so that was always fun. Yeah. And I was going to go on to Hotel T. There might have been a little gap, but I was going to eventually go on to Hotel T. And that's when Art Center called. I'd been teaching, I had taught part time one class for Art Center years earlier and then when I was working over at uh, Nickelodeon I worked on Avatar The Last Airbender. I was I actually designed the opening title art for Avatar The Last Airbender oh, for wow. you know the fans who like it. And then I was the first visual you know background designer and I did the first color keys and advertising art and stuff like that. And I, I left after about I would say eight months into the first year of the show and I went over to work on open season at Sony. Art Center called and said, you know, would you be interested potentially in a full-time job here to help us set up the entertainment program so you know they I'm, I'm shared between the illustration department you know another department in the school and then you know that's basically how it works so since I've been there most of the time I've been there I've taught digital painting traditional painting composition for animation and film drawing a lot of those compositions if you sort of dig through my instagram feed you know six months or something Mm -hmm. you'll see all these cutaways and layouts and things like that that are done by the students that we're going through there yeah it's incredible (laughs) we were very successful with those students so yeah i mean i feel i mean i've been lucky to take a few classes with you and your way of elegantly breaking down everything just opened up a whole new way of seeing for me and even having been directing and doing photography just the way I thought about composition changed in the way that you break down composition mm-hmm. and you have this wonderful you had this phrase one day in class a student challenged you on uh, something compositionally and your response was well you can't argue with 500 years of painting yeah that's a little bit of a glib response but yeah <laughs> but um, I thought yeah. it was so but then you you sort of I mean I'll let you 
talk about this, you know, way more than I do, obviously, but from the, from the masters of the Renaissance up through 17th, 18th century art, even up into like abstraction. Mm-hmm. But yeah, certain things like the proportional system. Yeah, that, that there are certain, this is interesting because if you go back, you know, we have instant communications now, but you go back 200 years, they didn't have instant communications. They didn't travel as much. They didn't get to see as much imagery, you know. They did everything they could to sort of, you know, Rembrandt would sell, you know, lithographic prints of his work, and he, he was very entrepreneurial, and he was really one of the first to popularize himself, you know, by sending out these materials. Uh, that was, I'm sorry, that was uh, Rubens. Rubens did it. Mm. And they had, uh, those prints were in Rembrandt's collection, right? Wow. So, you know, they were beginning to be able to look at each other's work, but not nearly the way we do. And... What's interesting is you'd run into these, like if we go over to the Getty, I can point out some compositional devices and principles and, you know, they're not rules exactly, but they're really pretty, pretty solid guidelines on how to approach these things. And you'll find people who live in different countries and they're separated by two or three hundred years in time and you'll find the same devices showing up in their work. And so what I was saying to the student is that it's not really necessary that these people all talk to each other. What's interesting is they all came to the same conclusions, whether independently or not. And so what they're doing is they're finding certain things to hold on to because they really help to make your composition work, especially in a narrative structure. And that's really what I was saying. It's hard to argue with this because these people didn't know each other, right? And they, you know, they, they, they did learn by looking at each other's work. And we do tend to be looking at the art that was done by you know, very astute people from those time periods. We're not looking at the average person. We're looking at very astute people from that time period who would look at things and start noticing these things. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was really sort of saying to the student is that's what's kind of hard to argue with, especially when you come into film because we are doing the same kinds of compositions. The difference between, say, you know, somebody 200 years ago is doing a narrative picture and us is that we can make the picture move. Right? right, They had to deal with depth. We have to deal with depth. They had to create depth in a stage for their actors. We have to create depth in a stage for our actors. So, you know, the difference is we have cameras and they didn't. Do you remember, was there sort of an aha moment when you realized this stuff was going on and turned it into your own formula? Or was it progressive just from teaching? And think- I think it's progressive, but I do have periods, like in the last... I taught a lot as a part-time teacher. So I taught at Otis and I taught at various community colleges. In fact, some of the best learning experiences I had as a teacher was actually in community colleges. And I had a specific class at uh, Mount Sac Mm. where I was teaching a life drawing class and there was a woman who was an ESL teacher who was, I believe, Korean and or, or Korean background. She was retired and she would sit in on my class and uh, but she taught ESL for, you know, 40 years. And I would be talking to a student, and she would lean in, and she would say, you're talking too fast. <laughs> and, you know, after a while, she'd given me so many instructions, and she's, in theory, a student in the class, that she felt uncomfortable, and she came up and apologized to me and said that she'd been an ESL teacher, and that, you know, really, that's all about communication, And she said, you know, the words you're using are a little large. I can tell you that a lot of these students don't understand what the words mean that you're using. 
if you're dealing with students that are from another country or if their English is their second language, it's a good idea to slow down and make sure that they, they really have an opportunity to let everything you're saying sink in because they may have to translate everything in their head, you know, when you're talking to them. And so <laughs> I think she was, and I, I never, or at least I can't remember her name because it was so long ago, mm-hmm. but she was another person I would add to that list sort of an unsung hero since I can't remember her name, I'm afraid. But she was interesting because she was talking about, yeah, you know everything you know, and that's nice. It would be even better if you could communicate it to others. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, well, there's something. And and that, I would say, has been a guiding light for me. I mean, you know, it's, it's not enough that you know things. In fact, knowing things isn't all that hard, especially today. You know, we're not, we're all smart people. It's easy to know things. Taking what you know and communicating it to someone who's younger and who doesn't operate on the same assumptions or doesn't have you know, certain really fundamental but nevertheless complex understandings of how these things work, you, know, you have to figure out how to bring them into it, right? And a lot of times you do it in bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. You know? So you'll say something that, or you'll, you'll give them an assignment. I give a lot of assignments that emulate things they might do in the field, but they don't do it exactly. Because, you know, it's not enough to come in and say, this is what the profession needs, do only this, right? You have to give them an assignment that also respects the fact that they're students, they're not professionals. So the assignments I give them are really intended to help them learn a concept. Like I'll do cutaways, right? Yeah. So, you know, cutaway is a room, and if you look at think of a room as being inside the box, and we're going to remove the walls and the roof that are facing us, and we're leaving the two back walls on the floor. Well, they use those things in film and game design to kind of plan, and then if you build them in 3D, you can rotate around and find camera angles and things like that. That's great, but I also use it as a way of forcing students to deal with scale, right? right. And I'll give them what I call junk room compositions. They have to do a cutaway, and I'll give them a prompt that forces them to stick just a pile of stuff in that room. And the educational thing they're learning is how to basically scale everything, how to organize groups of props and elements so that they're easy to read and understand. And they also tell the story, convey a mood. You know, there are five or ten things these things have to do all at the same time. Right. It looks like it's something you might use in the field. You could put it in your portfolio, but at the same time, it's real job at the level I tend to teach is to teach them how to do it. Right. I mean, it seems like you also place a big emphasis on how to think yeah. and draw well and concepts that yeah. then can be applied to... Yeah, I, draw, I, I teach drawing through concepts. You have to have observational skills in order to be able to draw. But I'm not a huge fan of teaching drawing and overly valorizing observational skills. I take it as a given that if you're going to be able to draw something, you should be able to look at it. And, you know. But what's more important, for example, is if we're going to draw a chair or we're going to draw some element in a, in, in a story, it has to be a supportive element to the story being told. It has to tell me something about the person who lives there. It has to tell me something about, not only are they, they're, they're living in a 19, you know, they're living in an art deco home, but, you know, they're somewhat impoverished, right? So their art deco home is going to be weather-worn, and, you know, maybe they're not terribly sophisticated, so... They don't know to match everything to the Art Deco, so you know they've got other things pastiched on top of the Art Deco. That's going to start telling me things about the person, right? right? And they can still be noble. They can be our hero, right? But 
essentially you're, you're giving me a very textured understanding of, of who this person is and they're not even in the picture yet. We haven't even met them yet. And then you get into another complexity, which is I can take the person living in that room and either have the room represent them or I could contrast the person with that room, right? right. Somebody living in, in squalor but has a noble heart, that kind of stuff, you know. Is, they're in contrast to the room. So that's where all the conceptual stuff gets in. You know, you, you never want to separate that out from the, the skill you're developing and the composition that you're using. You know, one of the things I do, you've seen me do this a bunch of times, mm -hmm. is I draw a triangle and I'll break the triangle into three separate pieces. And the bottom half of the triangle, I just write the word skill. In the middle section of the triangle, I'll write composition. And a little tiny top of the triangle, I'll, I'll draw a little old-fashioned light bulb. And I'll say that's the idea. And this is sort of how I break down for my students. And my students are entertainment students. I'm not dealing with fine art students. I'm dealing with, you know, there's, you always have to say, who am I teaching? Right. Right? Yep. That's context. So within the context of who I teach and what they want to do, I'll tell them, look, it's always about the idea. Of course it's always about the idea. But as a student, here's your dilemma. You have this great idea, but you have neither the skill or the compositional ability to express the idea. So one of the things you're going to do in school is spend probably half your time developing the skills. And the skills will allow you to create a composition, and the value of the composition is guided by and the success of the composition is determined by how well it expresses the idea. So yeah, it's about the idea, but it's also just equally about all these other things too, because everybody has ideas. Mm -hmm. The difference between an artist and the average person isn't that the average person doesn't have ideas, it's that the artist has the skills to express those ideas in a piece of art. Right. Somebody else might express them differently using their own skills, but for us, again, in context, that's what we're doing. Yeah, that's a great way to think. What do you think are some of the biggest mistakes or challenges you find that students have to get over regarding skill and composition? Yeah, well, this is yeah. We we've talked about this too. This is this is an interesting thing. You'll see it on. I think Instagram is a great proponent of this, and I can tell you, Art Center is because, again, I told you we have these sort of you know sort of mutants that show up. These sort of unnaturally gifted you know twenty year olds who show up and. You know, they sort of disappear into the mass later. But, it, you know, what happens is when you meet them at Art Center, they stand out. And who knows why they're the way they are? I mean, maybe their parents put them into art school five years earlier. Maybe they took art classes all through, you know, high school. Maybe their parents were fathers. You know, like if my, my daughter went to art school, she grew up with an Art Center professor. You would expect her to have a certain edge over some poor kid that didn't have an art center professor, you know, who lived in the same house with them. So when these kids have these unusual skills at a young age, there's usually a reason. Because I don't think there are that many savants in this field. Mm -hmm. I think really, if you're better, it just means you started a little earlier. So, you know, don't be too full of yourself, right? right. So common mistakes I see students do is they become obsessed with skill development. So another diagram I use is I'll sort of draw a little dot in the bottom of the page and I'll come up about three inches. I'll draw a little line across the, the thing and I'll say, this is good enough, right? When you become good enough at drawing or you become good enough at color theory or become good enough at design or rendering, when you become good enough, it's time to diversify. So it's very easy to get locked in because it takes effort to become good enough. And once you've made that effort, 
you're always going to see somebody who you think is a little ahead of you. And you can develop this kind of tunnel vision and you'll just kind of pursue this. I see this um, maybe on Instagram or I'll see it, you know, in various ateliers where they'll just pursue portrait drawing. And they never get around to the idea of, well, what am I learning how to paint the portrait for? <laughs> right. right. And they're just, you know, they just go down this tunnel. And, you know, I hope eventually they all say, wait a minute, I want to do something with this. You know, this is really not intended to be an end result. So they, they look at Russian academic drawing and they sort of forget this was all student work. When these guys got out of school, the first thing they did was stop drawing Russian academic drawing because it takes too long and because they want to get on to doing their actual art, right? This was part of a learning process. Right. You know, look at the other stuff they did. You're going to learn more from that than by looking at their schoolwork, which is amazing, admittedly, but you know, still. So what I try to get students to realize is you don't have to be the best at everything. What you, you want to be is good enough at a, a broad range of things. And good enough is pretty damn good, you know? And, and I use myself as an example. It's like, I'm a very good life drawing teacher. Does that mean I'm the best life drawer? Not really. I mean, you know, I'm very good, but I don't have to be the best, you know, because once I was good enough, it became, how do I break down the material so it's easy to understand? How do I gather reference material that I can give students? Those are those hundreds of PDFs I dump on people. Right. You know, that is to provide context. So once I know how to draw, then it's how do I break it down so it can be understood? How do I simplify it? How do I provide context so that when you're learning how to draw, you learn that you want to learn how to draw for a purpose so you can use it for something? And so what I'm doing is giving people lots of examples of how other artists use these things. You know, and it just goes on down the line. You know, style. Why would I draw a drawing in a certain style as opposed to another style? You know, and, and again, you get this whole cluster of other skills that I become good enough at. You know, I'm not an art historian, but I know enough about art history to, to be able to do it. I just can't pretend to be an art historian. It doesn't matter that I'm not an art historian. You know, I'm a good painter. Am I the best painter? Am I a renderer? Am I an industrial designer? I can draw, I can draw in perspective really well, but am I like an industrial designer? Well, no, but they're not me either, are they? Right? <laughs> right? You know, they're just industrial designers in a sense, and that's very good too. It seems like it helps to be a generalist in a way for the arts tracks anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think you have things that are probably your great skill. You know, there's, you know, in a sense, mm -hmm. there's a planet in the center and you've got a lot of little satellites floating around, right? right? I would say for me, in a lot of ways, my great skill is probably communication. And you know, I'm good at talking to people and I'm very patient. So what I'll do is explain things over and over again. In some ways, that's in the, in the context of teaching in an art school, finding somebody who's as verbal as I am is, is a little bit more rare than you might think. Mm -hmm. So just the fact that I can take complex material and break it down, which means I have to know the material, so, you know, oddly enough, I'm an art teacher, but I'm not sure that actually my art skills are the key. I think actually it's the communication skills. Yeah, I mean, I'll say for me, the way that you break things down, I, I think I said it earlier, it's just mind-blowing. just really took me to the next level. It's fun to do. So much fun. It's fun to do. And I like doing it with a group of people because, you know, I'm not an actor, but I, there's an element of performance to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd be dishonest if I, if I wasn't, you know, there's, you know, I'm sort of like a bad stand-up comic, except I'm sitting down and drawing the whole time. <laughs> right. And, you know, I mean, I, I... It's its own kind of theater. It's its own kind of theater. That's what it is. Yeah. And teaching is theater. 
If you take a class with a dull speaker, that's not theater. No. But a teacher who can keep you engaged, they're using theatrical techniques to do it. Yeah. So, Do you have any philosophies around practicing and how to practice in the way that you are not just repeating mistakes or that you're actually getting better? I'm a big fan of guided practice, which mm -hmm. means you need somebody to help you. Mm -hmm. If you can get it through an online school or you can get it through somebody who you, who you know, you know, that would be good. Let me see. I, I think probably for people who want to get really good, there's going to be a period in your life where you're going to have to devote a huge amount of time to it. I think, I think Art Center has it essentially right, where we lure people into the school, the whole time they're there, we own them, and there is nothing but art center. Right. And that's really the secret. And when they're, you know, when they're not in class, they're doing homework. They're in the cafeteria doing homework while eating a sandwich. <laughs> and they're doing it in big groups, mm -hmm. right? So there's a, there's a social aspect to it. Art Center has these computer labs everywhere. I mean, they're in every building. I don't even know how many computer labs Art Center has. But you go into some of them, and it's just they smell horrible, especially at the end of the term. You get the feeling people have been sleeping there. Yikes. You know, and the pizza's been delivered there. And I know that sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll screen movies. So people are in there working all night, and just anything to keep you going, right? Anything to keep yourself going. They'll, they're screening movies for them to watch. And these are things that students tend to do for themselves. And... Is it healthy? Well, not long term, you know, but it's a bit like medical school. Is medical school healthy? I've, I've, I've only read about, you know, the horrors of medical school. Right. But I think a short period of time like that, because it's, it's all done in context. Mm -hmm. So you have these skill classes, and at the same time, if, you, if you're in a good school, they're basically constantly applying the skill to something. You know, all of my assignments are skill-based because you know I'm at the stage where I have to build student skills but they're never just skills assignments they're always there's always another component to it there's always this is how it would apply to the industry this is how it would apply to creative thinking or whatever yeah I always love seeing the post of the 300 heads assignment. oh yeah yeah well and of course part of the fun of that assignment is it's slightly insane and <laughs> if it was 200 heads it would be far less interesting <laughs> completely but since it's slightly it's just a little insane Everybody goes, yes, and they go in there and do it, and all the students are very proud when they finished it. Yeah. And For those listening, do you mind just talking about what that assignment is real quick? Oh, yeah, the 300-head uh, assignment, it's, it's actually a master copy assignment. And here's the, uh, here's the theory behind it, okay, the, the thinking behind it. If you were, say, to go to Disney in the 90s and you wanted to be an animator, and an animator, you know, you can think of them as a person who animates characters in a film, but you could also think of them another way. You could think of them as a person who can draw a person with any facial expression possible for a human or a horse or anything basically <laughs> and they can capture these expressions with such nuance that no one else in art history was has been able to do it as well you know they can capture a guy who's feeling frightened trapped but has an inkling of an idea on how to get out and they can actually get that in one facial expression yeah. it took years for these guys to learn how to do it and the system that trained them basically no longer exists today, but the films do. So what I do, and I don't always use traditional films for this, like color keys, if I'm teaching digital painting, mm -hmm. I have them do color keys as a midterm, but they can do any film they want. But for, for drawing, what I like to do is 
have them go to the say 90s films and it's a little heavily weighted towards Disney but primarily because Disney did more of them than everybody else mm -hmm. I'm not particularly interested in Disney per se but what they'll do is go through these films and I'll say just find expressions that are interesting to you it's really loose actually you have to do 300 facial expressions based on facial expressions you're finding from different characters in different sort of 90s all the way back to the 60s because I go into 101 Dalmatians, The Aristocats, Jungle Book, you know, Sword in the Stone, all of those films are included in it. Also we do Iron Giant, Road to El Dorado, and a whole slew of Disney films. But I try to stay from the 60s forward so that the faces you're learning how to draw are sort of current. Mm -hmm. Pinocchio is great but it's a little old. You know, the, the, the structure, we're not really using those structures the same way anymore. Right. You can use Pinocchio for lots of things, like lighting. Bambi is still studied for lighting, for example, spotlighting, that kind of thing. But for this, it's really a, a master copy. And 300 means, I really don't want you to spend more than two or three minutes per head. And the secret is, if you don't want students to spend a lot of time on one drawing, give them a lot of drawings to do. <laughs> And they won't. They won't spend a lot of time on one drawing. So yeah, um, the 300 heads really works, too, by the way. They have to do another 100 in the costume class. Then in my costume figure class, I make them do 100 heads just to warm them up for the term. And they have to do that one in a week. That's a one-week homework assignment. That's good. I'm, I'm going to try to take that on this in the next month or two. I haven't tried that one yet. So If you go to hashtag Will Weston Studio, you will find, I don't know where they come from, but... There are people who are doing these assignments, and then they post them to that hashtag. So if I go to that hashtag, there are assignments from people. I have no idea where, where they are, and they're doing those three. They call it a challenge. Everything on Instagram is a challenge. Yes. So it's a 300-head challenge, and I'll, I'll see it. You know, People are doing it. So I'm really glad to see that, because that's why I post this stuff, is to kind of... If you're in Australia, if you can't afford Art Center, you know, I'd like, I like the idea. It's very, very modest on my part, but it's a, just a modest attempt to help people who don't have a lot of money learn how to do these things. That's really what it is. It's, you know, it's, it's probably not as valuable as a class, but here are basically pages out of a how-to book. Yeah, absolutely. And the student work is, this is the result. And if you go through that Instagram feed, what you'll find is occasionally a picture of my dog, uh, very occasionally, maybe once a year. But mainly what it is is just Blackboard demos and student work, and that's cause and effect. That's what it is. Yeah, it is an absolute goldmine of knowledge. So It's fun. One of the other assignments maybe I would just like you to go into just briefly because it helped me immensely was your thumbnail assignment, the three-tone one that I think would really benefit a lot of filmmakers, cinematographers, photographers that maybe haven't thought about. The film study assignment? Yeah. Yeah. That's not, you know, that's not an assignment that's actually my invention, okay? The film study assignment was one that, I don't know who invented it, to tell you the truth. But when I was at Disney in the training program, they had us do film studies. And what they would do is they'd give us a little form, and it had, you know, 70 millimeter aspect ratio on there, and it had about 30 of them. And it was on an 11 by 17 sheet. You know, basically, you know, there are a lot, you, if you go to my website, you'll find it on a website. You know, you can download these sheets if you want from me. And what they would do is they give us a fat black marker. So you don't, and what you would do is use the side of the marker and you would actually do, you'd look at a, you'd, you'd choose a movie like The Maltese Falcon or The Third Man. We'd start with black and white films. A High Noon is a great one. Paths of Glory is another great one. 
Sullivan's Travels is another great one. So these are going back into the 40s. And you would watch the film and you just freeze it when you see a shot that's interesting to you and you would do your film study. And it, you don't draw faces. It's really not about drawing at all. It's about silhouette and flat shape. And what you're doing is you're reverse engineering the film, the shot, back to black and white, and you're looking for the underlying graphic driver of the shot. And then the three-value one is just one step beyond the black and white film study. I seriously recommend people do the black and white film study. Talk about egregious numbers. I will have people do 600 in two weeks. Wow. Uh, and, you know, and then what happens is years later they'll say, you know, that was the best assignment I had because it, it's the one. What it's designed to do is give you a sense of cinematic composition. It's if in the training program it was interesting because one of the categories that they would that they would um, grade you on when they periodically evaluated you was your sense of cinematic composition, wow. which is different than say plein air painting or you know going to a museum. It really has to do with can you design a movie shot, and how do you study that? Is it just a feeling? Well, what you do is you, you look at the great films and you study the shots. Well, how do you get yourself to actually study the shot rather than just watch the film? You know, and what, stare at it a little extra hard? You know, you can't <laughs> right. just watch the film. So what you do is you give yourself a project and you, you, you freeze it, which breaks up the story and turns it into a series of individual shots. And you're going to notice primary things. You're going to start being able to grasp what a major driver is in a film composition. The other thing you're going to start noticing is secondary stuff that different directors you've used different shot lineups. Different directors favor certain shots over others. That certain shots have certain effects, other shots have different effects. And this is a something you can actually teach yourself, which is you don't need anybody for this. And I would recommend do 600 in black and white and then go to what you were describing, which is the three value system. And the three value system is basically this you're going to break it not down into black and white, but you're going to break it down into light, medium, and dark. The darkest, let's just say we, uh, let's say we're going to do a 10 value system. We'll say one is white and 10 is black. Mm -hmm. All right. You would go no darker than 80% and your medium value would be 40%. Okay. And then, so there's white paper and you just break it down like that. Wow. An advance on that, do another 600 of those. <laughs> you know, be an art center student. Do another, do, be insane like the rest of these guys are. And, exactly. And uh, you'll get good because that's the whole thing. You're, you're competing with people in this field who really want to be in the field. So if you say, well, I really want to be a fine artist, but I'm going to do it to make the money, good luck because you're competing with people who don't want to be a fine artist and really want to be a great film person. Right. And so they're not half-assing it. They're taking it seriously. They value it as an art form. Unless you're really unusual, they're going to beat you. Yeah. I mean, just from the students I've seen at Art Center, they, they know every minutia of every game, animated film. You know, they're, well, and people they're all come out. It. People come out of other schools, too. You know, when I worked mm -hmm. for the guys on Avatar, they didn't go to Art Center. I didn't go to Art Center. You know, so uh, you don't have to go to Art Center. It's just the odds. You know, if you go to Art Center, your odds are a lot better. And I can, I can tell you that, 
they would be because of just the placement of people when they get out of the class. Right. You know, I'm not a shill for Art Center though because, you know, you have to be kind of tough to go to Art Center. You know, because it's 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 a it's a tough environment to be in because because the talent level is so high. You can have other schools that produce a lot of great people too. Cal Arts produces great people. Mm -hmm. you know, I think recently I, I think I heard Cal Arts was number one for animation. We don't actually technically do animation. Mm -hmm. We do visual development for animation, film, that kind of stuff. Yeah. We do have an animation program that's new. I'm, I'm, I don't know much about it at this point. I can't yeah. say good or bad. You mentioned a little bit about life drawing. Do you guys stress, or I mean, do you personally stress life drawing? Is yeah, for, you got to get that down. I do. In, you know, we're talking about you know how do you change over time a little bit when you teach, and and the mo the more I teach life drawing, the less it looks like traditional life drawing approach. You know, because I'm starting to do a lot of you know design it flat and then make it dimensional. And part of this is just as, as I talk about taking everything apart, mm -hmm. this is a process you start on, but you never really stop. <laughs> so once you start down that road of taking everything apart and questioning everything and saying, well, I don't know, you know, I mean, a gesture drawing, um, it's, it's really just simple and complex, right? And mm -hmm. the gesture is to teach you simple and complex. But part of me thinks, well, you could just teach people simple and complex and have them practice that and then they'll be closer to the next stage of the process. So when I'm teaching it, and again, you'll sort of see it, I, I sort of break the torso down to a box of a certain proportion and the rib cage is half of it. You take the bottom half, divide it in half, there's the hips. You can twist it, you can turn it, you can do anything you want with it. The most important thing for my students is that you can make it up when, without a model being there. Right. Because again, we're not in atelier, so what we're doing, even in a life drawing class, is teaching people how to draw from observation, but we're also at the same time teaching them how to, or at least I'm teaching them how to draw things so that they can make it up. I shouldn't speak for Art Center this way exclusively because we have teachers from different departments who are very, very good teachers and they do things very differently than I do. So I, I should speak really only for myself here. Yeah. We have other, other points of view that are really excellent as well, so I'm not gonna, you know, Say right. I'm, the, right. I'm the be all and end all of this stuff. <laughs> I do think it's incredibly helpful how you break it down though, and think about it. And and you're, it seems like you're teaching design in addition to observation, kind yes. of melding the two. Yes. Yeah. Well, you're you're looking you're looking at life, but in the end, you're responsible for a designed drawing or painting or composition. So why not teach design while you're looking at life? Because that's what you're breaking it down from anyway. I just think, again, you're taking two separate subjects sort of folding them into one, and that speeds things up. Because kids today, when they're in school, they have to, they have to learn more than I had to learn when I was in school. I mean, I could, I could spend half my time wandering around San Francisco in a haze, <laughs> having a great time, and still get, you know, I was a straight-A student in art school. And it wasn't because the school was terrible, but because their grading was, 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 was easy. It was, I simply didn't have to learn as much. You know, they have to learn everything I had to learn, plus all this digital stuff, too. Now, you know, increasingly, when students come into school, they have such a good intuitive knowledge of the computer that eventually they may not perceive that as having to learn a lot of extra stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like to my daughter, who's 16 at the moment, she doesn't really have to go out and learn any of this stuff. She just kind of knows it, and I just watch her. And, <laughs> and it's amazing to me. But even students 10 years ago, five years ago, they really, they did have to learn it more. But students today, they've grown up in this kind of, you know, digiverse, right? right. So 
you know, they, they can barely separate themselves from it. And so that means they're exceedingly comfortable there. And so maybe it's actually could be getting a little easier in some ways because mm-hmm. the computer stuff is becoming so intuitive that it's like knowing how to write. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah completely. So do you pursue any personal artwork at this point? I'm, I'm really a teacher. I mean, if I, if I do stuff on my own, like I'll take my kid and we'll go to the Natural History Museum and draw dinosaur bones and you know talk about her chemistry final then we'll move to another room and talk about dinosaur bones and i try to teach her things without being caught in the act of teaching her things so because you know (laughs) you don't want to be taught by your dad exactly so but she's a very acute observer so if i sit next to her and draw she'll she'll you know kind of look over and spy on me a little bit and i'll see it maybe not that day but i'll see it later on showing up and her notebooks. She copies my uh, posts in her notebooks. She oh, has wow. several notebooks full of drawings, and she's getting much better. But I don't tell her a lot. She's she's very good at self-teaching. She's been taught to do that, mm-hmm. and I think that's, you know, in any educational process you go through, I, I don't care whether it's art school or something else, the ability to continue teaching yourself afterwards is really the key, because the world's going to change a ton right. in the next 40 years. Yeah. So anything you learn in school today is going to change so much that um, you're going to have to relearn and relearn and relearn. Yeah, I have to learn about video now. Yeah, so <laughs> I can help you there. Uh-huh. Um, there's another phrase that you've said that I like: steal from. If you oh, steal from the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, a lot of this is you know. Which I mean, honestly, that it was about stealing from your Instagram. You're like, if you want to know how to do it, it's on my Instagram. Go steal it. Yeah. I'm teaching yeah. you. Yeah. Basically, that's what I'm suggesting. Yeah. I, I, I sort of start this by saying, so let's let's talk about influence for a moment, right? <laughs> what do you mean when you say, boy, I really like so and so? You know, I mean, I really love his work. I really love her work. You know, I want to be influenced by this woman or that man, and you know, I want to be influenced and. Uh, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean that you look really hard at their work and then you just kind of go back and do things the way you did before? No. What it means is you look at something that they're doing that you love and you steal it <laughs> and you use it in your work. You know, and you don't steal their entire style or their entire technique. That's that's a different kind of theft, yeah, right? Right. What you're doing is you're saying that you and they share something in common. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, they're better at it than you are. So what you're doing is you share an interest in some area. You're learning from them. How do you learn from them? Well, you do it the way they're doing it. And I post all this stuff on Instagram. And what I'll tell students is, you know, if you want to learn how to do this stuff, loot my Instagram feed. You know, just download it all. Because you never know when the thing could go away. I don't know what Instagram's going to do. So you just download it all and get it on your desktop. And just treat it like a life drawing book. What I would say is copy the drawings. And don't just copy line for line, but when you're doing it, try to figure out what I'm thinking while I'm doing it, which means you probably want to start on the left-hand side because I work from left to right. And so, you know, all of my thinking is outlined in those posts. It's not just the drawings. It's what I'm thinking while I'm doing the drawing. And I'm figuring out how to do it all visually that's why the little arrows are pointing everywhere all the time mm-hmm. it's so that i can eliminate a lot of text because in the modern world you're communicating with people globally and only some people speak english so what i try to do on the blackboards and you know eventually i want to do a book of some sort but you know i'm quite lazy but 
when I do do that, what I want to do is have something that is a book you really look at, copy from, and then go out in the world and do it on your own. Yeah. And I want it to be a book that you don't really have to read, primarily so that people who don't read English can get as much out of the book as people who do read English. Right. So, you know, steal from me. And then in the end, what happens is who you are as an artist is sort of the collection of people you've stolen from because that's a creative choice. And then what you've stolen from each individual artist is going to be different than what another person would steal. Right. So even that is a creative choice. And I saw it with Van Gogh. He started out as a Barbizon school painter. I, you know, in Amsterdam, they have the Van Gogh Museum, and it sort of starts out with his beginning. And then it, the museum sort of ends with the beginning of the phase of Van Gogh's paintings that, you know, where, that we associate with Van Gogh. Mm -hmm. But before then, he started out as a Barbizon school painter. He looked just like a Barbizon school painter. But every single new person he encountered, he took something from. And what he did is he created himself out of it. And in the end, he doesn't look like anyone else. So it's, you're not, it's not about stealing somebody's whole thing. It's about, think of it as shared interests. You and they have something in common, but they're better than you at it. That's why I studied with Glenn Vilpoo. I loved his you know, hatching technique. Mm -hmm. And I did it. I, I did it before I studied with Glenn, but he was better at it than I was, so I studied with him. I liked Carl Nass because I liked the sense of motion and mass that he got. And, you know, those were two guys I didn't mention previously who have been very influential because, you know, in the, in the 90s, I took a lot of classes with them. And you know, I'm somewhere between Glenn and Carl, right? Because <laughs> right. I'm, I'm not patient enough to be Glenn and I'm a little too fussy to be Carl, so I'm somewhere in between, right? So I would be in Carl's class or Glenn's class and students would sit in those classes and they'd do these gorgeous demos. They were just gorgeous demos. And the students would look at them and they'd go, wow, he's just amazing. I just love this guy. And then they'd go back drawing the way they were before when the model came up. And it just, I was dumbstruck. No, you, you do what Carl's doing. That's how you learn from Carl. You do what Glenn is doing. At least when you're in the class, that's how you learn from these guys. And you, you know, so quickly, once you're out of their orbit, you'll simply keep what's truly of interest to you, and you're going to forget about the rest. Mm -hmm. So it, you don't have to worry about whether you're being yourself. The choices themselves are creative. And I think you learn faster that way, too. Because there's, you know, in this stuff, which is complicated and there's a lot to learn, there's a slow boat and there's the fast boat. And, you know, I advocate the fast boat, by and large. Yeah, that's a great way to think. I love that whole idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think... I think I've probably taken up enough of your time. Is it? I think is we've it, covered it. Yeah, I mean, there's so yeah. much good stuff in there. I, I think people hopefully yeah. will get a lot out of it. Uh, I know I certainly have gotten a tremendous amount out of your classes um, at the Animation Guild. Although maybe I shouldn't say that they're at the Animation Guild because every time, except this last one, that I've registered in 17 seconds, I've been on the wait list. So <laughs> my record is 11 seconds. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So if anyone is thinking about taking your classes at the Guild. Better have your uh, stuff copied and paste, ready to paste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, uh, when it goes live, autofill or something. Yeah. Actually, back in the day, I used to have all of my friends call because before the computer came along in the '90s, we were you'd have to do it by phoning up, mm -hmm. and I'd have five of my friends ready to phone, and the second you you could phone in, all five of us would phone in, and one of us would get in and sign me up for all the classes. So I always got. <laughs> the classes I wanted yeah. and then we would do it for each other I mean we would do it for each other so yeah. it was 
you know, you, you always have to work the system to get in there. Yeah. Another resource, if you don't mind my mentioning no, resources. No, I was going to ask you that next. You know, I was going to recommend that the Animation Guild in Burbank is excellent. They have a website. You can just go find them easily. The Society of Illustrators LA mm-hmm. is in Glendale. They're also really good, and I would recommend they have a website. You go there and talk to them. Obviously, Art Center is very good. Art Center and you know, is not the only art school. I taught at Otis. I think Otis is very good. Cal Arts is very good. You know, in all honesty, I have to say Art Center is the best art school I ever taught at. It's remarkable. But it's also very expensive. Mm-hmm. I think last year, maybe the year before, it was listed as one of the top 25 colleges worth the money. But it was also listed as one of the most expensive colleges in the country. So it's, you know, it's worth the money, but it's expensive. And these other places, you know, Concept Design Academy is another one. Mm -hmm. Brainstorm is another one. I think even New Masters, if you are getting their videos, New Masters has people that are really good. Ramon Alexander Hurtado is really good. And he has videos out. You can find him online. I don't have anything like that yet because uh, I just have an Instagram feed. My Instagram feed is at uh, Will Weston Studio. Great. And uh, I post there almost every day. Yeah, I'll definitely put that in the show notes for everyone. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. a gold mine. Well, thank you, Will. I really appreciate this. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, uh, it's the first time I've done this. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah, it's an honor. Thank you. I really appreciate right. it. Thank you.